What happens if you want to invest, but your local market is out of reach? Why is borderless investing on the rise? And how can you do it yourself? My name is Dan. Welcome to the Passive Income Doctor podcast. Just a reminder, this podcast is for entertainment purposes. Nothing here is financial advice. Please speak to your trusted professional advisors. Views expressed by podcast participants are solely their own. Today, we'll be talking about borderless property investing, something that I personally have done and also um, kind of given advice on some other people who have asked me how I have been able to do it. Now, it is a bit more daunting on the face value, you know, trying to purchase such an expensive asset in, you know, another city, another state. Um, you know, there's fears about managing it, what happens if something goes wrong with the property or the tenant. We'll be talking about how you can manage this and how you can select the right asset in the first place. So borders investing is something that has been on the rise. The traditional thinking is that, you know, you buy in your same suburb or the suburb next door so you can drive past and, you know, feel like it's safe and it's still there. But be honest, you know, how often do um, investors even do that, you know, and if there was something wrong with the property, you know, that's why you have property managers who professionally manage it without the emotion and can help take the stress out. You know, a good saying is that you want to manage the manager and then the manager will manage the property. Um, you know, they're more familiar with up to date with the legislation, the procedures dealing with um, issues or say needing to go to tribunal or the tenant falling behind on rent, you know, there's all these procedures, you know, as a landlord, you know, you, you know, it'd be very unlikely you're going to knock on the door and try and demand payment or things like that. Um, or, you know, tell them, hey, you know, can you please keep the front lawn mown? So as I said, just looking at your own backyard may not be the best market. In Australia, there's 15,000 suburbs quite unlikely that your suburb or the next suburb will be the best performer at any one time. Now, of course, when we select a property, we want the suburb to have long-term growth trajectory as property is definitely a long-term gain. Um, it's very illiquid and there's lots of high entry and exit costs such as stamp duty, selling agent fees, conveyancing fees, building and pest fees, uh, finance fees, refinance fees. But what I've found and also observing other successful versus not so successful investors is that you do want to have that kind of short-term growth as well, especially if you don't have you know millions of dollars in the first place. Because if you can put, say, a $50,000 deposit and it goes up by 100K, you know, probably from 500 to 600K, um, so it's gone up in say 100k equity. You can pull out say 80% of that, so 80 grand, and then you can buy your second property subject to you able to service that extra loan. But you can see saving for your first deposit is the hardest, and that's what I tell my colleagues as well. And once you've got your first one and able to get your second one, now you've got two assets growing in value. And if you bought at the right time, the cycle, you'd be able to then extract the equity. And go again, you know, assuming a lot of doctors um, 
income, especially early on in the career, does have a kind of steady rise to it. So essentially, you're riding that initial wave up, harvesting that equity, and then basically you can scale your portfolio. And obviously, you might need to do lots of tweaks in the way. Um, You know, some people say never sell, but there may be a reason to, such as a poor performing asset, or you can better use that funds in another, um, you know, suburb or region that is at the start of its growth cycle. So an example about timing, you know, and, and buying at the kind of opportune time would be, you know, say Sydney between 2011 and 2019 um, had a massive growth. Some houses in Western Sydney tripled from 300,000 to a million. However, if you bought in Perth, you know, say from 2014 to 2019, not only did it not go up, it went back about 21%. So essentially, you would have, would have been sitting on negative equity, which would have been quite painful. And if you didn't have that increase in equity, it would have been extremely hard to then purchase a second property. Essentially, you'd have to try and save it up. And also as well, um, the banks would look at your situation and might be hesitant to lend more. So at the time of recording in 2023, Sydney and Melbourne are quite expensive with relatively low rental yields. We're talking gross yields of, you know, 2 to 3%. And with current interest rates around 6%, this makes holding these properties quite challenging. So quite negative um, cash flow, around $40,000 on a $1 million purchase price, um, assuming 90% loan. Now, of course, you get some of it back if you're talking about negative gearing, but, you know, assuming a tax rate of 33%, so you lose 40K and you might get about 13K back, but you're still out of pocket, a whopping $27,000. And not everyone can afford to um, have this holding costs. And also as well, it could uh, very quickly uh, throttle your chance of growing your portfolio. Now, lots of high paying professionals such as doctors work and live in you know, the two big cities of Sydney and Melbourne, um, but they still want to invest and hence often look at other markets, myself being one of them. Um, a lot of people talk about, you know, investing in cheap or affordable markets. Now, I don't like this term per se because many small, tiny towns around the country are very affordable, very cheap, but they won't necessarily grow over the long term especially populations less than 10,000 and reliant on one industry such as mining. And if that mine closes down, then that's going to be disastrous for capital growth and also for um, tenancy vacancy as well. But what I do like is, you know, trying to look around which markets around Australia represent good value. And this is the theme of today, talking about borderless investings. And these markets locals can afford and want to buy where there's diverse economy drivers and there's good lifestyle drivers. You know, after Sydney boomed, um, you know, there are all these other towns, kind of Central Coast, Newcastle, Wollongong, uh, North Coast, um, then followed as well. So let's talk about some factors which might help you decide, you know, where in Australia you should be buying. So I guess you should use some data 
Okay, and let's split this up into quantitative and qualitative. So quantitative, um, there's many things, um, so I won't list them more, but things that you should consider is vendor discounting, um, you know, vacancy rates, rental yield, days on market. And it's not just a once-off. You kind of want to look at the trend. If the amount of vendor discounting is reducing, um, if the days a property is on market is reducing, this kind of hints towards um, a property market becoming more hot or going up. And another one would be um, number of listings as well. So obviously the statistics are more reliable if there's, you know, say hundreds of transactions rather than just one or two, um, which can skew the data. So with the data, you want to look deeper. And um, if there's anomalies, there might be a good reason for that. You know, say in another suburb, suddenly it looks like the median house price has gone up a lot. And you might think, oh, capital growth um, is very strong. But it could be there was a release of um, brand new house and land packages which might be more expensive than existing older existing property stock. Other quantitative markers that you can look at is demand supply ratio, um, DSR score. So this is a score out of 100 and 50 represents where demand meets supply. If the score is more than 90, um, this is extraordinary demand, you know, offers above asking price, lots of people lining up at open inspections. Some resources, they say they like looking for a score of 70 rather than 90 um, because, you know, the market's not as heated and, you know, won't have to compete like crazy and offer high amounts just to secure a deal. Another quantitative marker is inventory. You know, the average number of properties sold per month over the last year divided by how much current stock there is. Um, so, you know, if a suburb's gone from you know six months to 12 months of inventory that suggests the market might be slowing down there might be too much supply coming on versus if another suburb you know it's trended down and now there's only two months of inventory so if basically no more new listings in two months all the existing properties would be soaked up now let's talk about qualitative data now this one's much more subjective um, and I guess people use terms like gentrification. So I guess this is a process of, you know, more owner occupiers moving in, house proud, they might present their front yards nicely, um, you know, do up the gardening, you know, paint, make the facade look nice versus, say, tenants who may not, um, you know, um, put that much care in. Other things that might um, have a poor kind of, First impression is, you know, if there's a lot of old um, car bodies kind of sitting in the front yard or lots of rubbish um, or, you know, nobody in the street has got their front lawn mown, that sort of thing. Some other kind of markers of gentrification that lots of industry experts talk about is, you know, kind of trendier cafes opening up, breweries perhaps, um, and kind of young professionals or young families moving in. Some examples of suburbs that have gentrified in the past, um, if we're talking Sydney, would include Paddington, Newtown, um, Balmain. And then for Melbourne, suburbs such as Richmond and St Kilda. 
and then in Brisbane West End. Sometimes older homes are updated or even upgraded, um, so there's some warehouse conversions. Um, I did recently um, listen to a podcast where they say you've got to be careful about those, about the zoning, because some banks, um, if it's still industrial zoning, you know, commercial zoning, they might only lend 70% or might make you obtain commercial lending with the associated high interest rate as well. I would like to point out that, you know, the process of gentrification is not kind of overnight. It does take a long time. And I think a lot of people often underestimate how long it takes. Often it can take decades. Change often happens slowly. Um, Peter Kozilos in a blog post talks about young professionals moving into area, you know, and there might be all these old rundown character homes, but then they've got the disposable money to be able to upgrade these homes, um, restore it um, into uh, original or even better condition. Um, sometimes they put like a modern extension on the end, um, but keep the you know kind of traditional heritage facade. He also talks about how gentrification is in process for inner Western Melbourne, you know, such as Footscray, and then also some Sydney suburbs um, such as Arncliffe. Tempe. So now that we've given a bit of information about qualitative, quantitative data, you might have now narrowed down to which state, which suburb um, or subgroup of suburbs, you know, what do you do next? So even within a suburb, there's good pockets, bad pockets, housing commission parts, um, you know, certain roads might be rat runs and you basically have to become a local area expert. And how do you do this? You can um, talk to local property managers. You can even go there on the ground yourself, talk to um, you know business owners, uh, uh, locals, and try and get a feel of the suburb yourself. And also visiting at different times of the day is very important. You know, school traffic, um, peak hour traffic. Um, you know, if it's say. A house next to a sock, um, an oval, you know, on the weekends is there like impossible to get parking, that sort of thing. So lots of traditionally, you know, traditionally investors would say that you have to physically go to an, a property yourself, um, whether it be interstate or not, and you have to see whether you yourself would live there. Um, I guess the issue with this is that your tastes and the local demand might not match up and you got to remember you're buying what the locals want not what you want in recent times there's a lot of due diligence that you can do from home you know with google maps looking at past sale photos talking to council on the topic of talking to property managers they can give insights you know what do the locals expect you know is it double lockup garage which may be in say more premium suburbs while in others a carport is sufficient. Um, you know, I know many suburbs in Perth, especially the more outer suburbs, the locals, whether it's owner occupiers or tenants, you know, um, they often quite desire like a large um, powered shed. Buying interstate sight unseen is sometimes unavoidable though, such as during COVID pandemic lockdowns. Sometimes a selling agent can send through like a remote video walkthrough or take photos. Um, you could also get a local property manager to do so if you've got a relationship with them. 
Um, bear in mind though, often they have a vested interest in you buying the property and may omit kind of bad aspects of the property. So obviously it's, you know, not as ideal as you inspecting yourself, but sometimes we have to work with the circumstances. I myself have personal experience and also know people that have caught flights to inspect, but then also others um, have bought sight unseen as well. An advantage of kind of flying to see a property yourself um, is that um, you can see what it is like at that time of day unless you come back at different times. What, however, what's the downside? You know, it's quite, doctors um, and other healthcare professionals are often very time poor, you know, working crazy hours and not many chance to have days off. And even if you have days off, you might want to enjoy it with your family or go to the beach or go to the cafe and chill out or catch up on sleep rather than, you know, <laughs> catching flights and um, trying to cram in as much inspections as you can and trying to negotiate with the agent to let you see it if there's not an advertised open house. I remember after doing a set of night shifts flying up to Brisbane on for a weekend and just back-to-back inspections and um, and it was actually that the one I ended up buying, it was just by good luck and serendipity that I saw it and I called the agent up who agreed to have it shown to me even though there was no scheduled open home. And actually, you know, it was a while ago so I might have actually missed the open ham that happened earlier and I think the agent agreed to show it to me but sometimes it might not be possible or then kind of not willing to do so. This also depends whether it's a hot market or a slow market. So with buying kind of sight unseen, obviously there is a risk of missing something. Um, you know, having someone on the ground inspect and sending photos, videos is helpful. I might make a future episode on about buying sight unseen. So today's Mindset Minute is from the Motley Fool um, website. Um, they run an investing service, I believe. So don't waste time mastering things that won't work. And they talk about things such as day trading and technical analysis. Now, of course, some people can make it work, but statistically, um, you know, this is extremely hard to do and, you know, I myself like sticking to safer asset classes that have capital growth but also give passive income. And also as well, with things like property, you know, often it's a imperfect market. You know, if you kind of have more knowledge um, than the seller or the selling agent um, or more information than other buyers, then you have that edge and that's where, you know, chances of, able to secure a great deal at a great price or you know buying under market can come into play thanks for listening to today's show please take a moment now to hit the subscribe button and share the podcast because this will help others benefit also so until next time keep taking steps to improve your financial health